Chapter Twenty One of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty One England under Henry the Fifth. First Part. The Prince of Wales began his reign like a generous and honest man. He set the young Earl of March free, he restored their estates and their honours to the Percy family, who had lost them by the rebellion against his father. He ordered the imbecile and unfortunate Richard to be honourably buried among the kings of England, and he dismissed all his wild companions, with assurances that they should not want, if they would resolve to be steady, faithful, and true. It is much easier to burn men than to burn their opinions, and those of the Lollards were spreading every day. The Lollards were represented by the priests, probably falsely for the most part, to entertain treasonable designs against the new king, and Henry, suffering himself to be worked upon by these representations, sacrificed his friend Sir John Oldcastle, the Lord Cobham, to them, after trying in vain to convert him by arguments. He was declared guilty, as the head of the sect, and sentenced to the flames. But he escaped from the tower before the day of execution, postponed for fifty days by the king himself, and summoned the Lollards to meet him near London on a certain day. So the priests told the king, at least. I doubt whether there was any conspiracy beyond such as was got up by their agents. On the day appointed, instead of five-and-twenty thousand men, under the command of Sir John Oldcastle, in the meadows of St. Giles the king found only eighty men, and no Sir John at all. There was, in another place, an addle-headed brewer who had gold trappings to his horses and a pair of gilt spurs in his breast, expecting to be made a knight next day by Sir John, and so to gain the right to wear them. But there was no Sir John, nor did anybody give information respecting him, though the king offered great rewards for such intelligence. Thirty of these unfortunate Lollards were hanged and drawn immediately, and were then burnt, gallows and all. And the various prisons in and around London were crammed full of others. Some of these unfortunate men made various confessions of treasonable designs, but such confessions were easily got, under torture and the fear of fire, and are very little to be trusted. To finish the sad story of Sir John Oldcastle at once, I may mention that he escaped into Wales, and remained there safely for four years. When discovered by Lord Powis, it is very doubtful if he would have been taken alive, so great was the old soldier's bravery, if a miserable old woman had not come behind him and broken his legs with a stool. He was carried to London in a horse-litter, was fastened by an iron chain to a gibbet, and so roasted to death. To make the state of France as plain as I can in a few words, I should tell you that the Duke of Orléans and the Duke of Burgundy, commonly called John without fear, had had a grand reconciliation of their quarrel in the last reign, and had appeared to be quite in a heavenly state of mind. Immediately after which, on a Sunday, in the public streets of Paris, the Duke of Orléans was murdered by a party of twenty men, set on by the Duke of Burgundy according to his own deliberate confession. 
the widow of King Richard, had been married in France to the eldest son of the Duke of Orléans. The poor mad king was quite powerless to help her, and the Duke of Burgundy became the real master of France. Isabella dying, her husband, a Duke of Orléans since the death of his father, married the daughter of the Count of Armagnac, who, being a much abler man than his young son-in-law, headed his party, thence called after him Armagnacs. Thus France was now in this terrible condition, that it had in it the party of the King's son, the Dauphin Louis, the party of the Duke of Burgundy, who was the father of the Dauphin's ill-used wife, and the party of the Armagnacs, all hating each other, all fighting together, all composed of the most depraved nobles that the earth has ever known, and all tearing unhappy France to pieces. The late king had watched these dissensions from England, sensible, like the French people, that no enemy of France could injure her more than her own nobility. The present king now advanced a claim to the French throne. His demand being, of course, refused, he reduced his proposal to a certain large amount of French territory, and to demanding the French princess Catherine in marriage with a fortune of two millions of golden crowns. He was offered less territory, and a fewer crowns, and no princess, but he called his ambassadors home and prepared for war. Then he proposed to take the princess with one million of crowns. The French court replied that he should have the princess with two hundred thousand crowns less. He said this would not do. He had never seen the princess in his life, and assembled his army at Southampton. There was a short plot at home just at that time for deposing him and making the Earl of March king, but the conspirators were all speedily condemned and executed, and the king embarked for France. It is dreadful to observe how long a bad example will be followed, but it is encouraging to know that a good example is never thrown away. The king's first act on disembarking at the mouth of the River Seine, three miles from Harfleur, was to imitate his father, and to proclaim his solemn orders that the lives and property of the peaceable inhabitants should be respected on pain of death. It is agreed by French writers, to his lasting renown, that even while his soldiers were suffering the greatest distress from want of food, these commands were rigidly obeyed. With an army in all of thirty thousand men, he besieged the town of Harfleur both by sea and land for five weeks, at the end of which time the town surrendered, and the inhabitants were allowed to depart with only five pence each, and a part of their clothes. All the rest of their possessions was divided amongst the English army. But that army suffered so much, in spite of its successes, from disease and privation, that it was already reduced one-half. Still, the king was determined not to retire until he had struck a greater blow. Therefore, against the advice of all his counsellors, he moved on with his little force toward Calais. When he came to the river Somme, he was unable to cross, in consequence of the fort being fortified, and as the English moved up the left bank of the river looking for a crossing, the French, who had broken all the bridges, moved up the right bank, watching them, and waiting to attack them when they should try to pass it. At last the English found a crossing and got safely over. The French held a council of war at Rouen, resolved to give the English battle, and sent heralds to King Henry, to know by which road he was going. "'By the road that will take me straight to Calais,' 
said the king, and sent them away with a present of a hundred crowns. The English moved on, until they beheld the French, and then the king gave orders to form in line of battle. The French not coming on, the army broke up after remaining in battle array till night, and got good rest and refreshment at the neighboring village. The French were now all lying in another village, through which they knew the English must pass. They were resolved that the English should begin the battle. The English had no means of retreat, if their king had any such intention, and so the two armies passed the night close together. To understand these armies well, you must bear in mind that the immense French army had, among its notable persons, almost the whole of that wicked nobility, whose debauchery had made France a desert, and so besotted were they by pride and by contempt for the common people, that they had scarcely any bowmen, if indeed they had any at all, in their whole enormous number, which, compared with the English army, was at least a six to one. For these proud fools had said that the bow was not a fit weapon for knightly hands, and that France must be defended by gentlemen only. We shall see, presently, what hand the gentlemen made of it. Now, on the English side, among the little force, there was a good proportion of men who were not gentlemen by any means, but who were good stout archers for all that. Among them, in the morning, having slept little at night, while the French were carousing and making sure of victory, the king rode on a grey horse, wearing on his head a helmet of shining steel, surmounted by a crown of gold, sparkling with precious stones, and bearing over his armour, embroidered together, the arms of England and the arms of France. The archers looked at the shining helmet and the crown of gold and the sparkling jewels, and admired them all. But what they admired most was the king's cheerful face, and his bright blue eye, as he told them that, for himself, he had made up his mind to conquer there or to die there, and that England should never have a ransom to pay for him. There was one brave knight who chanced to say that he wished some of the many gallant gentlemen and good soldiers who were then idle at home in England were there to increase their numbers. But the king told him that, for his part, he did not wish for one more man. The fewer we have, said he, the greater will be the honour we shall win. His men, being now all in good heart, were refreshed with bread and wine, and heard prayers, and waited quietly for the French. The king waited for the French, because they were drawn up thirty deep, the little English force was only three deep, on very difficult and heavy ground, and he knew that when they moved, there must be confusion among them. As they did not move, he sent off two parties, one to lie concealed in a wood on the left of the French, the other to set fire to some houses behind the French after the battle should be begun. This was scarcely done when three of the proud French gentlemen, who were to defend their country without any help from the base peasants, came riding out, calling upon the English to surrender. The king warned those gentlemen himself to retire with all speed if they cared for their lives, and ordered the English banners to advance. Upon that, Sir Thomas Eppingham, a great English general, who commanded the archers, threw his truncheon into the air, joyfully, and all the Englishmen, kneeling down upon the ground and biting it as if they took possession of the country, rose up with a great shout, and fell upon the French. 
Every archer was furnished with a great stake tipped with iron, and his orders were to thrust this stake into the ground, to discharge his arrow, and then to fall back when the French horsemen came on. As the haughty French gentlemen, who were to break the English archers and utterly destroy them with their knightly lances, came riding up, they were received with such a blinding storm of arrows that they broke and turned. Horses and men rolled over one another, and the confusion was terrific. Those who rallied and charged the archers got among the stakes on slippery and boggy ground, and were so bewildered that the English archers, who wore no armor, and even took off their leathern coats to be more active, cut them to pieces, root and branch. Only three French horsemen got within the stakes, and those were instantly dispatched. All this time the dense French army, being in armor, were sinking knee-deep into the mire, while the light English archers, half-naked, were as fresh and active as if they were fighting on a marble floor. But now the second division of the French, coming to the relief of the first, closed up in a firm mass. The English, headed by the king, attacked them, and the deadliest part of the battle began. The king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, was struck down, and numbers of the French surrounded him. But King Henry, standing over the body, fought like a lion until they were beaten off. Presently came up a band of eighteen French knights, bearing the banner of a certain French lord who had sworn to kill or take the English king. One of them struck him such a blow with a battle-axe that he reeled and fell upon his knees, but his faithful men, immediately closing around him, killed every one of those eighteen knights, and so that French lord never kept his oath. The French Duke of Alençon, seeing this, made a desperate charge and cut his way close up to the royal standard of England. He beat down the Duke of York, who was standing near it, and when the king came to his rescue, struck off a piece of the crown he wore but he never struck another blow in this world, for even as he was in the act of saying who he was, and that he surrendered to the king, and even as the king stretched out his hand to give him a safe and honourable acceptance of the author, he fell dead, pierced by innumerable wounds. The death of this nobleman decided the battle. The third division of the French army, which had never struck a blow yet, and which was in itself more than double the whole English power, broke and fled. At this time of the flight, the English, who as yet had made no prisoners, began to take them in immense numbers, and were still occupied in doing so, or in killing those who would not surrender, when a great noise arose in the rear of the French. Their flying banners were seen to stop, and King Henry, supposing a great reinforcement to have arrived, gave orders that all the prisoners should be put to death. As soon, however, as it was found that the noise was only occasioned by a body of plundering peasants, the terrible massacre was stopped. Then King Henry called to him the French herald, and asked him to whom the victory belonged. The herald replied, "'To the King of England!' "'We have not made this havoc and slaughter,' said the king. "'It is the wrath of heaven on the sins of France. What is the name of that castle yonder?' The herald answered him, "'My lord, it is the castle Azincourt,' said the king. "'From henceforth this battle shall be known to posterity by the name of the Battle of Azincourt.' Now 
our English historians have made it Agincourt, but under that name it will ever be famous in English annals. The loss upon the French side was enormous. Three dukes were killed, two more were taken prisoners, seven counts were killed, three more were taken prisoners, and ten thousand knights and gentlemen were slain upon the field. The English loss amounted to sixteen hundred men, among whom were the Duke of York and the Earl of Suffolk. War is a dreadful thing, and it is appalling to know how the English were obliged, next morning, to kill those prisoners mortally wounded, who yet writhed in agony upon the ground, how the dead upon the French side were stripped by their own countrymen and countrywomen, and afterwards buried in great pits, how the dead upon the English side were piled up in a great barn, and how their bodies and the barn were all burned together. It is in such things, and in many more much too horrible to relate, that the real desolation and wickedness of war consist. Nothing can make war otherwise than horrible. But the dark side of it was little thought of, and soon forgotten, and it cast no shade of trouble on the English people, except on those who had lost friends or relations in the fight. They welcomed their king home with shouts of rejoicing, and plunged into the water to bear him ashore on their shoulders, and flocked out in crowds to welcome him in every town through which he passed, and hung rich carpets and tapestries out of the windows, and strewed the streets with flowers, and made the fountains run with wine, as the great field of Agincourt had run with blood. Second Part that proud and wicked French nobility, who dragged their country to destruction, and who were every day and every year regarded with deeper hatred and detestation in the hearts of the French people, learnt nothing, even from the defeat of Agincourt. So far from uniting against the common enemy, they became, among themselves, more violent, more bloody, and more false, if that were possible, than they had been before. The Count of Armagnac persuaded the French king to plunder of her treasures Queen Isabella of Bavaria, and to make her a prisoner. She, who had hitherto been the bitter enemy of the Duke of Burgundy, proposed to join him in revenge. He carried her off to Troy, where she proclaimed herself regent of France, and made him her lieutenant. The Armagnac party were at that time possessed of Paris, but one of the gates of the city being secretly opened on a certain night to a party of the duke's men, they got into Paris, threw into the prisons all the Armagnacs upon whom they could lay their hands, and a few nights afterwards, with the aid of a furious mob of sixty thousand people, broke the prisons opened and killed them all. The former Dauphin was now dead, and the king's third son bore the title. Him, in the height of this murderous scene, a French knight hurried out of bed, wrapped him in a sheet, and bore away to Poitiers. So, when the revengeful Isabella and the Duke of Burgundy entered Paris in triumph after the slaughter of their enemies, the Dauphin was proclaimed at Poitiers as the real regent. King Henry had not been idle since his victory of Agincourt but had repulsed a brave attempt of the French to recover Harfleur, had gradually conquered a great part of Normandy, and at this crisis of affairs took the important town of Rouen, after a siege of half a year. 
this great loss so alarmed the French, that the Duke of Burgundy proposed that a meeting to treat of peace should be held between the French and the English kings in a plain by the river Seine. On the appointed day, King Henry appeared there, with his two brothers, Clarence and Gloucester, and a thousand men. The unfortunate French king, being more mad than usual that day, could not come. But the queen came, and with her the Princess Catherine, who was a very lovely creature, and who made a real impression on King Henry, now that he saw her for the first time. This was the most important circumstance that arose out of the meeting. As if it were impossible for a French nobleman of that time to be true to his word of honour in anything, Henry discovered that the Duke of Burgundy was, at that very moment, in secret treaty with the Dauphin, and he therefore abandoned the negotiation. The Duke of Burgundy and the Dauphin, each of whom with the best reason distrusted the other as a noble ruffian surrounded by a party of noble ruffians, were rather at a loss how to proceed after this but at length they agreed to meet, on a bridge over the river Yon, where it was arranged that there should be two strong gates put up, with an empty space between them, and that the Duke of Burgundy should come into that space by one gate, with ten men only, and that the Dauphin should come into that space by the other gate, also with ten men, and no more. So far the Dauphin kept his word, but no farther. When the Duke of Burgundy was on his knee before him in the act of speaking, one of the Dauphin's noble ruffians cut the said Duke down with a small axe, and the others speedily finished him. It was in vain for the Dauphin to pretend that this base murder was not done with his consent. It was too bad, even for France, and caused a general horror. The Duke's heir hastened to make a treaty with King Henry, and the French Queen engaged that her husband should consent to it whatever it was. Henry made peace, on condition of receiving the Princess Catherine in marriage, and being made Regent of France during the rest of the King's lifetime, and succeeding to the French crown at his death. He was soon married to the beautiful Princess, and took her proudly home to England, where she was crowned with great honour and glory. This peace was called the Perpetual Peace. We shall soon see how long it lasted. It gave great satisfaction to the French people, although they were so poor and miserable that, at the time of the celebration of the royal marriage, numbers of them were dying with starvation on the dunghills in the streets of Paris. There was some resistance on the part of the Dauphin in some parts of France, but King Henry beat it all down. And now, with his great possessions in France secured, and his beautiful wife to cheer him, and a son born to give him greater happiness, all appeared bright before him. But, in the fullness of his triumph and the height of his power, death came upon him, and his day was done. When he fell ill at Vincennes, and found that he could not recover, he was very calm and quiet, and spoke serenely to those who wept around his bed. His wife and child, he said, he left to the loving care of his brother, the Duke of Bedford, and his other faithful nobles. He gave them his advice that England should establish a friendship with the new Duke of Burgundy, and offer him the regency of France, that it should not set free the royal princes who had been taken at Agincourt, and that, whatever quarrel might arise with France, England should never make peace without holding Normandy. Then he laid down his head, and asked the attendant priest to chant the penitential psalms. Amid with solemn sounds, 
on the thirty-first of August, one thousand four hundred and twenty-two, in only the thirty-fourth year of his age and the tenth of his reign, King Henry V passed away. Slowly and mournfully they carried his embalmed body in a procession of great state to Paris, and thence to Rouen, where his queen was, from whom the sad intelligence of his death was concealed until he had been dead some days. Thence, lying on a bed of crimson and gold, with a golden crown upon the head, and a golden ball and sceptre lying in the nerveless hands, they carried it to Calais, with such a great retinue as seemed to dye the road black. The King of Scotland acted as chief mourner. All the royal household followed. The knights wore black armor and black plumes of feathers. Crowds of men bore torches, making the night as light as day, and the widowed princess followed, last of all. At Calais there was a fleet of ships to bring the funeral host to Dover, and so, by way of London Bridge, where the service for the dead was chanted as it passed along, they brought the body to Westminster Abbey, and there buried it with great respect. End of chapter 21 Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois